Uninvisible is a support podcast that provides information, ideas, suggestions, and experiences that deal squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice of any kind. We do provide support, concepts, ideas, discussions, and information that you can use to make sure that you are being heard and that your concerns are being addressed. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing, but we will be here for you along your journey. We welcome all comments about our episodes and, of course, the correction of any errors. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our Terms of Service and Privacy Policy, which are available on our website located at www.uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Most of all, we welcome your stories and experiences to share with our community because without you, this community and the benefit it offers all of us would not exist. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Of course, in the event that you are having a medical emergency of any kind, consult your physician or emergency services. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Okay, guys, thank you so much for joining us today. I am here with a very special guest who I'm so excited to connect with. I am here with Ariel from Carpe That DM. Um, Some of you may know him from Facebook or Instagram. Um, And uh, he's going to talk to us about his experience of invisible illness, disability, and gender. So Ariel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. This is such a privilege to be starting out on a podcast so early in my new accounts career. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's very exciting to have you on. And we connected, as I have with so many of my guests, through Instagram. And um, it's amazing the community that's out there just reinforces what so many of the people on the show say that like we're all out there for each other. And we just connected and started chatting. And I was like, you need to come on the show. So here you are. (laughs) Here I am. Yes. So (laughs) Ariel, why don't you... um, get us going here and tell us how you first realized you were sick and and what illnesses that you were dealing with. So my story is a little bit different than some of the other people in my age demographic um, in the chronic illness community because I actually had a pediatric diagnosis and I actually grew up sick more or less. Um, I had chronic ear infections all the time when I was a little, little kid. I had behavioral disruptions in school. I was constantly in pain. I was constantly inflamed. Um, I got disoriented very easily. I had multiple hospitalizations related to um, mostly heat intolerance Mm. um, because I grew up in South Florida. And even today, Gosh, I think it's already in the high 80s, not even factoring in the heat index. Yeah. So I was particularly vulnerable. I had several stints. Um, I had very devoted parents who advocated for me and made sure that I was accommodated. But we would go to the pediatrician and we had a very hard time, you know, trying to figure out what was wrong. And it wasn't until the pediatrician that I switched to when I was eight or nine years old, Mm. who 
really listened to the symptoms that um, my mom had been describing because prior to this point, some pediatricians had said, oh, you know, has childhood asthma and prescribed a nebulizer and I would do albuterol treatments and other nebulizer treatments multiple times a day, but never alleviated my symptoms. But I constantly had throat pain, difficulty breathing, you know, all the things that are associated with asthma. Yeah. Um, but this pediatrician saw that in context with some of my eating issues, um, some of the skin issues that I had, um, issues with my hair and my maturity and my healing ability, mm. and um, did a finger test in the office that I remember very clearly because I was absolutely terrified of sharp things when I was a kid. Who wasn't? Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, they ruled out pretty quickly um, type 1 diabetes. Mm. Um, but he had another hypothesis and recommended me to go upstate to have some testing done for my thyroid levels. Mm, wow. So at a young age, you were already presenting with Very these thyroid conditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the statement that pushed him in that direction um, was when my mom relayed that I had told her that it felt like my neck was broken mm-hmm. and like it was pushing my head back, um, wow. particularly when I would swallow. So I had really hard time eating foods. I rejected foods. Um, mm-hmm. Initially, it was just put to me being a picky eater, but eventually it was picked up pretty quickly that there was a physical component to it because at this point I had a goiter that had swelled more or less the diameter of my throat. Wow. Um, so this doctor who was very bullheaded in his own right um, had actually called the hospital up there reprimanding them for not um, taking my labs sooner because they were fasting labs and Everybody who's um, hypothyroid who's ever had to go up for a fasting lab knows the struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, and the lab work came back. I had not only you know my thyroid levels all over the place, but mm-hmm. he had done a full panel and it also detected the antibodies associated with Hashimoto's. So yeah. that was a very early on diagnosis spot on that my pediatrician was able to identify and then recommend me to follow up with a pediatric endocrine specialist in Miami. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So those exist for a start, which is exciting. <laughs> that existed back in the nineties. Like, wow. Yeah. That's pretty exceptional. And it's great that you found that doctor in time to actually start doing something about it when you were young. Exactly. Because yeah. When I think about where I am now in my life, I can't even think about where I would have been if I didn't have that doctor fighting so hard to really narrow down what was going on. Yeah. So you were aware even at that young age of of the advocacy that was at work for you, not only from your mom, but also with your, your doctor as well. Exactly. I had a very strong appreciation for that. Not so much when I was a little kid, because mostly Mm -hmm. I was just fussy and pissy and you know in pain all the time sure but as I grew up and became an adult that had to be responsible for myself I looked back and I really appreciated all the work that was already done to make my case 
Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful that they caught it. It sucks that you had it, but it's great that they were able to catch it. And so you've been managing the symptoms of the Hashimoto's I presume ever since. Yes. Um, They started me on the good old classic Synthroid when I was very young. Um, Armor thyroid has come up a couple of times um, with that particular specialist and with a couple of other doctors that I've seen since then but we're not really sure how effective or good for me it would be because my current doctor has a word that he likes to use for me and it's sensitive. Mm. I'm very sensitive to even the slightest changes in any medication regimen or ingredient in the medication. I've switched different forms of levothyroxine and different measurements of it. Mm probably 20 times over the past five years, just because either I've been allergic to a component of the medication itself. So I can't take the generic because of the ingredient in the dye. Wow. Um, Or I've had some other change happen where a dose just does not agree with me anymore. And I become very reactive to it. Yeah. I think, I mean, honestly, I've been having that lately myself and it's interesting because I think that shifts as our hormones shift, which they shift all the time. Um, and so many aspects of our lifestyle are factors in that shift too. So it's, it's no surprise to me that you've had to change, excuse me, had to change that medication over the years. Yeah. It makes a a lot of sense. And especially because I've been, uh, post-menopausal now because of my hysterectomy, which we'll talk about a little bit in depth later, but ever since then, I really am kind of just sliding up and down the scale of what works, what doesn't work. So it's always been a little bit of a fear about whether um, something like armor thyroid, natural desiccated thyroid would do more harm than Mm. good because of the fact that it's a I think they try to be consistent with how much thyroid gets into every capsule, but, Mm. you know, at the same time, it's still a compounded medication. It's not the same as something from a large pharmaceutical company where it's as carefully, I mean, there are pluses and minuses both sides, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So that's where I am with that. And it's been a wild and fun history. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Hashimoto's. It's just, it's so fun. <laughs> oh, it's the most fun. Everybody is missing out. I know. Well, it's funny. Hashimoto's, I find to be one of those really interesting diagnoses where 50% of the people, probably 75% of the people I talk to who say to me they have Hashimoto's have no problem um, managing their symptoms and getting their levels right. Um, for a lot of people, it's a very simple treatment. They just start taking mm-hmm. the Synthroid or some kind of combo therapy with T3 and T4 and they're right to go. But then there's that small population of the rest of us who end up getting the diagnosis and spend years trying to get it right and have much more extreme reactions to the the condition itself um, and it takes just a bigger toll on our bodies. And we're the lucky ones. <laughs> oh, like we're the ringleaders. Yes. Um, yeah. So tell us what else you've got going on. Um, you mentioned your hysterectomy and everything like that. We can talk about that. Go for it. Yes. So I had my hysterectomy. I wanted my hysterectomy um, because I wanted to be the first step in um, bottom surgery for gender affirming 
um, surgery, but mm. it became my priority over other aspects of gender affirmation because of just not only the dysphoric amount of pain that I had mm. because of it, but because of just the real time physical pain that I had from menstruation itself and from the hormones associated with it. Um, I was a very early developer, lucky me. Um, <laughs> when I was in second grade, I started hit, hitting puberty. Wow. And everything that I ever learned in Girl Scouts about, you know, growing into a wonderful young woman was a lie because mm -hmm. I did not have the support of the other young people my age. They were very cruel and mean to me because I was not only an early developer, but I was a well-endowed developer. Wow. Um, so I had, you know, my peers weren't supportive. I had adults making, you know, very inappropriate comments about mm. my body from a very early age that followed me well into my teen years. Um, and I had a really hard time coping with menstruation because it was so painful and I had a hard time articulating what that pain was in relativism to what the expectations were because everything, oh, yes. you know, it hurts, it hurts, it hurts. But I didn't have peers that I could talk about it with and hear back. It's not supposed to hurt that bad. Yeah. Um, I just was in a space of suffering and not realizing how undue my suffering was until yeah. much later in life. Mm -hmm. And even at by that point, it was only because the lid was starting to be opened up on, you know, the period discussion where more women and assigned female at birth people were speaking out about um, the pink tax and the mm -hmm. unfairness of um, the price increases and the unfair pricing of menstrual products, um, the lack of access to them mm -hmm. in public facilities. And that's where, you know, those conversations of things like PCOS and endometriosis and menorrhagia and, you know, all that started mm -hmm. to come from. And that was the point where I started to have to think more seriously about what was happening to me mm. and how abnormal that was. Right. So um, when I did finally start taking a stand in my urogynecological health, um, a lot of that was just about trying to, you know, normalize how much of my experience was, you know, identifiable mm. and also trying to, you know, get a grip of my own autonomy of the situation. Yeah. Which was probably all happening at once. And that's a lot to be processing emotionally, let alone physically. It really was. And yeah. Fortunately, I had a very sympathetic surgeon who um, I networked with, um, who is at the top of her game, essentially. She's a leading practicing surgeon and instructor with the local university here. 
She mm-hmm. travels abroad to perform life, you know, improving procedures for women in developing countries who don't mm-hmm. have access to um, gynecological health care. Mm-hmm. She um, is one of the lead surgeons of the most minimally invasive type of gynecological surgeries that are out there mm-hmm. um, using the da Vinci robotic methods. Oh, wow. Um, what's that? That sounds very interesting. Oh, uh, we will get into it because <laughs> he actually did identify me as a candidate for this kind of surgery to be minimally invasive, which was very important to me because, you mm-hmm. know, part of this was for gender affirmation reasons. So yeah. having this minimal scarring indicating, you know, a hysterectomy as possible was ideal. And to this day, all of my scarring is just inside my belly button because it was a one a single incision surgery. Wow. Yeah. That's really impressive. It's, I can't even get how like cutting edge Jetsons tier, like futuristic that is. Yeah. That's just below like surgeries by exterior lasers. Like you see in the movies. Yep. (laughs) Set in the future, of course. Exactly. So you were diagnosed with endometriosis eventually. Yes. Is that right? So yes. then you wanted to get the the hysterectomy not only for your comfort um, and to remove that level of pain that you were dealing with, but also, as you say, as a gender affirming surgery, correct? Exactly. Right. So what happened? Um, tell us about that surgery and about these da Vinci robots and yeah. um, what it's been like since. So... There's a really fascinating video online that I recommend watching and possibly even linking in the description here about um, I will. Yeah. About these Da Vinci robots actually performing like surgery on a grape and it just shows how precise these instruments are and how delicate these instruments are. Wow. And it shows them peeling the skin off of a grape so perfectly. Oh my goodness. The grape itself being perfectly intact. It's amazing. So these robots are piloted um, by the surgeon Mm. who sits at this console and basically navigates using hand controls. There's other, you know, surgical assistants there. um, And it is performed as a combination of um, minimal laparoscope that's... Mm. um, fed through the um, belly button as well as um, surgically up through the cervix, you know, to navigate and do all the good snip, snip stuff. Right. Um, I'm very articulate. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I was actually thinking that's a pretty accurate description, isn't it? (laughs) You know, the snip, snip stuff. Um, Yeah, the snip, snips. (laughs) But... I mean, I loved it because I'm very into giant mech robot anime um, piloted by like young, plucky individuals. So I just kept telling people it's the Gundam surgery. Um, So it went a little bit haywire, though. Not there weren't any complications necessarily during the course of the surgery, but the aftermath of the surgery was pretty devastating my surgeon was beside herself couldn't sleep a wink since she got my pathology back and called me back in to look at it um 
because the pathology came back and showed things that all the previous testing from my smear test and um, my imaging, which had been done by a different department than her. So it wasn't her who performed these tests. She relied on these tests being made available to her mm. and relied on these results being interpreted correctly. But right. they hadn't been because the feedback from the test indicated that I had deep endometriosis that had gone, you know, at least into the cervix itself, mm -hmm. which is very abnormal, not something that endometrium should be doing. Mm -hmm. um, and it also showed very abnormal cell growth over all quadrants of the cervix itself. Um, there were active and collapsed cysts all over the um, fallopian tubes and the ovaries themselves. It was it was a mess essentially. Wow. Um, so in the hysterectomy, you'd only had your uterus removed, right? And it, the other stuff was still intact. I had a total um, laparoscopic hysterectomy, ophorectomy. Um, this is okay. considered. Um, not standard for gender affirmation surgeries. They typically like to recommend that you leave um, at least one of your ovaries behind to produce hormone. Right. But okay. because of the severity of my symptoms and because um, of my desire to proceed with other types of reconstructive surgeries, we made the executive decision to just get rid of everything and then measure um, mm -hmm. you know, the consequences of whether I would need any kind of additional hormone, um, related support. Right. Um, and you thought it would be simple, but we all thought it would be simple, but, um, the aftermath was a mess and it all came down to the fact that those initial tests had not been performed or interpreted correctly. And because they hadn't been performed or interpreted correctly, now there's a slight risk, and by a slight risk, I mean there is a very real reality of the fact that there could be active endometrium still growing, mm. and there could be continuing abnormal cell growth. So the onus is on me now to keep up with that through future imaging, testing, and you know, putting faith that these things are going to be interpreted correctly and performed correctly. So you don't have any interest or your doctor hasn't advised to have the rest of your organs removed as well? It was recommended to me immediately that I very seriously consider having a vaginectomy um, done as soon as possible. That wasn't an original part of my plan, right? but it may wind up having to be a part of my plan because as it sits now, I'm in a position where um, I currently don't have insurance now, but mm. when I do get insurance again, um, it's going to be imperative for me to keep my gender marker aligning with, you know, the gender right. that's typically associated with these Healthcare treatments, and right? That's so that so that's difficult emotionally, isn't it? Because that's something Extremely. that it takes away from you your gender affirmation. Exactly. I feel like yeah. I'm sitting and you know playing the waiting game essentially because um, 
strong misconception with endometriosis is people assume that a hysterectomy is, you know, equivalent with a cure, that it's Mm -hmm. treatment, but it's not a cure. Um, Same thing with ablation, same thing with any kind of surgical intervention for endometriosis, because thing about endometriosis is that until you have a laparoscope mm. um, to identify the growth, endometriosis is considered a prospective diagnosis and not necessarily an affirming diagnosis. I know. I, that ever- drives me up the wall, that. Mm-hmm. Because so many people live in pain because of it. And, you know, the idea of having an invasive surgery in order to confirm a diagnosis that they already know from every other angle is, you know, just even more pain and and more suffering that you have to go through with something so painful. Exactly. Exactly. So are you living with pain now because of the endometriosis? I still live with pain. And I attribute a good portion of it to endometriosis because I do feel pain in regions that I felt pain previously Mm. that, um, you know, connected to the remaining organs in that region, the remaining pelvic floor. I still have intense pain in my pelvic floor. I feel like Mm. it's dropping constantly. I still get cramps. I still Mm. get bloating. I still get the whole nine associated with endo, even though I don't have, you know, the initial uterine compound. So aside from the fact that it's already causing you discomfort, it's also something that is still interfering with your self-identity. Oh, absolutely. It's a permanent aspect of who I am. And that's, you know, definitely the case with other people who have gone through the same process as well, as well as other people who have no interest in pursuing bottom surgery because it's by and large a very difficult surgery to access when you've already progressed to a certain point Mm -hmm. in your transition. But it's also a very difficult surgery for, you know, most uh, women presenting persons to access anyways because we have a huge misogyny problem in the medical field. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. So um, this is something that's sort of a TBA, I guess. We'll know when with future imaging, you're able to um, have the rest of these cells removed. Um, Yeah. But obviously it will be a bigger surgery then, and it won't be as simple as that keyhole that, you know, which was a very important part of the decision for you that you thought, you know, you could do this with minimal scarring and this may involve something more extreme. Um, which could have long-lasting effects. Exactly, because one of the very first things that um, my surgeon had told me was, had I seen these results beforehand, had had that original imaging and testing been properly performed and interpreted, Mm -hmm. um, she would never have even considered me a candidate for minimal surgery. It absolutely would have been a surgery that would need to have been performed with much more invasive techniques mm-hmm. in order to operate with the best confidence and authority that everything was taken care of and everything was managed. Wow. Gosh, you've been through it. So that's not all though. <laughs> You're like a a triple, quadruple winner here. Um, Um, 
Yeah. In the midst of all this, um, you also have a cluster B personality, right? So can you talk to us about that? Definitely. Um, so the terminology associated with being borderline is one of those things that you, um, see very early on if you're even remotely into books, movies, anything that has to do with like the crazy ex-girlfriend trope or like the girl interrupted trope or, um, you know, if you grew up in the nineties and you watched like TV after dark and you saw reruns of, of single white female, like Hmm. the whole concept of the cluster B personality is there and it's scary and it's, you know, a monster trope. It's a horror trope. Yeah. Um, the language was first introduced to me as something for me to be familiar with and be comfortable with by my therapist who I had been seeing for, um, we were in our second year together by Mm -hmm. that point. And he had to write some paperwork as a recommendation Mm -hmm. for me to receive support. Right. And you know, we have a full transparency disclosure relationship in terms of, you know, how we work together and how we work with one another. Mm. And before he gave me the copy of that recommendation, he said, I don't want you to think too deeply about what this word says, or even what it means. What I want you to think about is that this is a frame that we use in order to, um, provide the correct treatment for you. And that's a frustrating concept in and of itself, that the medical industry has to be told something that doesn't seem necessarily true to you. Exactly. In order for you to get treatment. Exactly. Wow. So can you tell us what it's like um, and how you have sought treatment? Yes. So one, it's scary as hell. Mostly because to the outside world looking in, we're the monster. Mm. But to actually be living here in this house, it's living in this house with the monster. Mm. And I'm, you know, an accessory by proxy of the fact that I share space with this monster that is a disordered personality. Mm. Um, The jury is still out as to whether cluster B personalities as a whole are hereditary because this is definitely something that's seen um, within generations and even amongst siblings. Mm. Um, But there's also the theory that it can be created by trauma or also that it is hereditary, but that it's triggered by trauma. Right. So it's regardless of where it comes from, Mm. there's a lot of debate and a lot of pathologizing of how, why, but there's not a lot that's available for providing support. Right. And for the what, as it were. Exactly. Yeah. Not a lot going on there. Um, I think the best resource that we have right now in terms of being a universal resource that's appropriate and accessible for the loved ones and carers of people with um, borderline and people who live with borderline um, and their therapists is um, the book 
um, I Hate You, Don't Leave Me, which just has the most charming title in the world. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Man. But that, contrary to, you know, the clickbait title, it is a really great resource in terms of universalizing and normalizing the ups and downs of living with a personality disorder, especially um, in terms of how to communicate and how to humanize the process of what's called splitting. This episode is sponsored by Ember Wave, the intelligent bracelet that helps control how you experience temperature. I'm heat sensitive, and this device has been a lifesaver. Using patented technology, it cools or warms the temperature-sensitive skin on your wrist, creating a natural response in your body and mind that helps you thermally adjust in minutes. It was selected by Time Magazine as one of 2018's best inventions. For those of you with mounting medical costs to consider, the team at Ember offer a payment plan in partnership with a firm. And because you listen to Uninvisible, they are offering you $30 off. Go to emberlabs.com slash invisible, that's E-M-B-R labs.com, and experience personal thermal wellness on a whole new level with me. Um, splitting is what happens when a person with a personality disorder hyperfixates on either a person, an event, um, an object, and they oscillate between feeling overwhelmingly positive emotions or overwhelmingly negative emotions and mm-hmm. splitting can happen instantly right. or the most asinine of reasons. It could be as simple as being used to talking to a person every day, but mm-hmm. then one day that person, you know, can't come to the phone or can't respond or can't like meet you or can't be there. And it just immediately flips the switch into mm-hmm. negative and catastrophic uh, thinking. Um, so does that mean that you function better with structure in general? In general, I function much better with structure, but it can't be mm-hmm. too overly structured because if it's yeah. too overly and finite structured, that gives more opportunities for things to go wrong. Sure. And when those things go wrong, everything collapses. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And so how have you been managing um, the, the personality disorder on a day-to-day basis? Are you taking medication? Are you using cognitive behavioral therapies? What are the various treatments that you've been using to cope? So um, cluster B disorders are notoriously medication resistant mm-hmm. um, because it's difficult to determine whether it's most like an anxiety disorder or whether it's most like, you know, a traumatic disorder, whether it's most like a depressive disorder. So usually what winds up happening in terms of medication therapy is treating the individual emotional symptoms that come with it. So you might be on several antidepressants, you might be on several antipsychotics, you might Mm -hmm. be on several anti-anxiety medications. Personally, I don't have any medication therapy that is directly associated with it. But I do take medication therapy associated with my bipolar 2 diagnosis. Okay. So I take mood stabilizers. Um, I've taken antidepressants. In the past, I've taken antipsychotics and anti-anxieties. Mm. Um, medication therapy alone, I will say, is not the yeah. most useful thing in my toolbox. Um, sure. The best part of my toolbox has 100% been 
um, the skills that I've workshopped with my therapist. I've yes. been with my therapist for the same amount of time that I've been with my partner. Um, yeah. We've been together for six years. Okay. And um, I mean, that's very good because in a way it gives you the opportunity to loop your partner into the, the way that you're retraining yourself. Exactly. Yeah. He's been there since day one. So both of them have essentially like been there together and have worked in their own tandem team in addition to like me and my therapist working in tandem. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, we use a combination technique of um, CBT, cognitive okay. behavioral related skills, but we also use skills um, from a school of therapy called dialectical behavioral therapy. Hmm. Um, and what makes dialectical behavioral therapy different from most other types of therapies is that it's about um, normalizing, de-escalating, and confronting difficult emotions in yeah. very blunt ways. And okay. very direct communicative strategies to address that negative feeling. It's very much geared towards addressing first and foremost negative feelings because those are the most averse and uh, mm -hmm. life damaging. Yeah. But those same techniques can also be used for overwhelmingly positive and manic feelings yeah. because those are also equally damaging. People don't think of them as being damaging because um, with particularly a borderline personality, the same passion that creates that irritability, that hate, that, you know, anger, that distress is also what creates being hyper-focused, passionate, organized, um, able to invest a lot of time positively into creating art, um, productive work. Um, yeah, so we see a lot of these Asset, facets of your personality as assets. Exactly. And actually they are associated with the personality disorder as a whole. So it's about managing all of them, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. Mm. But I mean, it's wonderful that you have your partner looped into this because I imagine that means that in your very close relationships, particularly with your partner, that you're able to rely on one another to sort of call it out when it's happening or, you know, redirect in a way that's more positive for you. Definitely. He's, um, we are definitely opposites in terms of our, um, vocabulary and our personality types. So mm -hmm. he has a very blunt and very, um, basic vocabulary approach mm -hmm. to a situation, which in many ways can be used as a force of good. But mm -hmm. sometimes when he doesn't, um, contextualize, himself it can add fuel to the fire sure so just as much been a process of him learning how to navigate that as well but yeah. him taking the time to learn how to navigate that has made him absolutely my best ally and advocate in virtually every social situation mm -hmm. and people are more inclined to take him seriously because he's a larger, you know, as far as the eye can see, emotionally stable mm. cisgender man. 
Right. And it's not fair and it's not right that that's the way that it yeah. is. But him having that very like rudimentary vocabulary, having a very monotone, even keel voice and having just the enormity of his masculinity mm. makes him, you know, my life preserver out there in the storm. Yeah, that's a very good turn of phrase, the enormity of his masculinity. It's so true, isn't it? Oh, and yeah. I think given everything that you've encountered just medically, let alone in the wider world in terms of self-perception and the way other people are perceiving you, that's also something that we encounter constantly on a daily basis, you know, that the people who are going to be heard and seen first are those people who identify most obviously as cisgender males um, and white cisgender males at that, aren't they? Definitely. It's the same concept as, you know, when somebody goes to the car lot, that they should always go with like their big dude friend, even if their big dude friend, dude friend doesn't know anything about cars. It's just the fact that, you know, the enormity of his masculinity is being there. Mm -hmm. Either, you know, the car mechanic or the salesperson feel pressured that if they say something misleading or wrong, that the, you know, big guy is going to be able to use his authority to counteract that. And that's what it is. It's authority. It's an authoritative presence. Exactly. It's all a game. Mm. Well, we're going to get into that in a second, but I just wanted to briefly bring up that the silver lining to all of this that you've been through is that you have a wonderful service dog, Caliban, who many of us will be familiar with through your social media uh, handles. But um, Caliban, I imagine, has also really humanized a lot of this journey for you and given you an additional ally with a really wonderful nonverbal relationship. Definitely. So prior to Caliban, um, me leaving the house was not a thing that was happening. Um, I was making attempts to be out of doors. I was making attempts to try to go back into the workplace. Um, Prior to Caliban, I did have um, another dog who's still in this family and is still very loyal, Mm. but um, he wasn't trained for public access because that wasn't a thing that I was doing with my life because of compound trauma and because of learned fear and aversion of social situations and of being outside of my own space. It wasn't a thing that was happening. So Mm. Caliban was my guiding point to get back into the world. He's my chaperone everywhere that I go. Mm. He's my mediator for basically any social convention. He's, you know, also my sort of lifeguard to intervene with any kind of psychologically damaging or physically um, difficult situation that I encounter. Yeah. Cause they get it when nobody else they does, do. don't they? Yeah. They do. Yeah. Um, and especially the dogs that have been trained for service in that way too. Yes. I yeah. just mentioned this in a post that, um, I posted today because, um, recently the vegan community and the service dog community, um, intersected in a very unfortunate way. It's not the first mm-hmm. time that this has happened, but um, in this particular circumstance, um, a large animal rights organization that um, defines itself as being an abolitionist vegan um, coalition. 
I think we all know which one you're talking about. But I don't know which one I'm talking about. I'm <laughs> yeah. Because I don't want to generate no, traffic to them. But sure. um, they made the boorish claim that service dogs are antithetical to veganism because the cause of using an animal for any human work is considered um, unethical. So dogs have an innate sense of wanting to support other creatures that they identify as being part of their families. Because even though dogs haven't been wolves for thousands of years, they still have that basic mentality exactly that pack mentality that family want to know they want to know someone's boss it's very old world it's um Mm. caliban is very much like the rest of my latino relatives who family comes first and Mm. for the two of us i'm family and i come first in his mind's eye yeah And that's so important too. And that's one of the huge roles that service dogs play because they're not just helping physically, but on an emotional level, they're prioritizing you in ways that like sometimes other people get too busy to prioritize. So you have this creature who will always make you the priority. Oh, absolutely. Because my partner, you know, works, he can't be around all the time. My therapist has other clients. He can't be on call to me. Mm -hmm. Um, Same thing with my you know, primary doctors and my specialists, um, folks who do have, you know, the opportunity to have home health care. Um, anybody who has home health care can tell you that it's, you know, it can be you waiting up until midnight for a nurse to come. Mm. And there just are not those opportunities to have somebody be there as a bedside nurse day in and day out. And with a dog, they can be attentive and on call because dogs sleep a majority of their day. They always have energy to be there to support you. Mm. And plus there are snugs and we can't deny the power of a snug. You most certainly cannot deny the power of the snug. (laughs) So um, you're also, I mean, we've obviously talked about it, um, but you're openly transgender, but you identify as agender. Yes. Um, can you talk to us a bit about the overlap between the way in which disability and invisible illness and gender have played a role in your life? Absolutely. So yeah. just to define agender for your listeners who yeah. this may or may not, I mean, this could even be their first time hearing about trans people. Yeah. So, you are certainly the first person I'm, I think who has been on the show who identifies as trans. So um, it's quite a milestone for us both. I think so because you've had other, um, you've had other folk who come on who identify as either being gay, lesbian or bi, but mm-hmm. I think I am the first I mean, most certainly the first openly trans person that you've had so far on this yeah, platform, which you is definitely are. A yeah. privilege. Um, yes. Well, it's a privilege for me as well. So thank you. Of course. So yeah. trans people as a whole can be identified as individuals who are assigned to one perceivable gender mm-hmm. um, who later make a conscious decision that they no longer identify with that 
assigned gender, mm-hmm. um, regardless of whether they choose socially to transition, to medically transition, to surgically transition, regardless of how they choose to transition. It's that conscious decision that somebody told me I was this, but I know I'm not that, that makes a person trans. It is that simple, Yep. Um, which is a largely unpopular belief in many circles but we won't get too deeply into that. Well, I mean, one thing I will say as the host of this show is that um, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks except you. So, um, you know, if anyone's listening and you don't believe that transgender people exist, um, you're living in another world. (laughs) Um, And everyone has the choice to be whoever they are. So, um, you know, and, and a show about any kind of inclusion has to include a discussion about inclusion in terms of identity in every single way, including gender identity. So definitely. Yeah. So part of my transition recognition has usually when a person identifies as trans, Hmm. they say, well, somebody told me that I was a lady, but I know I'm not a lady. Ergo, I must be a man. Right. However, that follow-up didn't exactly happen, that little part of the logic problem. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that I identify with certain aspects of masculinity. Mm -hmm. I also know that I identify with certain aspects of femininity. I also know that I strongly disidentify with many things associated with both of those, you know, traits altogether. Mm -hmm. Sure. I don't really have the language to encompass exactly what my gender is or how it would be perceived by other people. But there's yeah. a term that exists called agender, which is considered part of the non-binary spectrum. Hmm. And non-binary encompasses not only agender, but also bi-gender people who identify as both. Hmm. Um, gender queer people who identify perhaps as one but also the other at another given time it also encompasses demigenders where a person might feel somewhat masculine or somewhat feminine Hmm. um but also largely something else right but for me none of those things particularly fit but agender gives me a space where i can take things on a case-by-case basis and make a self-determination about what masculinity means to me and what femininity means to me. Mm. Um, Practically speaking, I've tried using gender-neutral pronouns before. They were my preferred pronoun of choice from my early 20s all the way through my mid-20s. But in my previous life, I was an English major, and it was an uphill battle trying to argue with my peers about the legitimacy of a singular gender-neutral pronoun, even though, one, they used it all the time in their everyday speech, Mm. and two, it exists in the etymological canon as far back as when the English language became recognizable to what it is today, that Shakespearean language. 
Which is, of course, associated with a certain cultural expectation, because as far as I understand, you know, in other cultures, I think it's in Native American culture, gender is a lot more fluid. Yes. You know? And so depending on what culture you come from as well, that could determine how, or perhaps perhaps not living in this modern Western world, but, um, you know, in times past, for sure, it would have had an influence on the way that one was even brought up to see gender. And I say see yes. um, quite pointedly because a lot of this has to do with what other people are perceiving from the outside exactly. and what you're perceiving from the inside and the overlap of invisibility there between what you understood and what other people were recognizing, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. And I come across this on a relatively daily basis when I interact with other people because depending on the gender biases of the people who are looking at me. Some people might more readily identify the feminine aspects of me, but other people might more readily identify the masculine aspects of me. So Mm -hmm. it's never consistent from person to person who I interact with. Um, I gave up trying to use the singular they pronoun, not because I disagree with it in any way, but because With everything else that I had on my plate, it was not a hill that I was ready to die on. Mm. So for practical purposes, I use masculine pronouns and I present in my day-to-day life in a very masculine way. It's the easiest and most comfortable uniform to wear for these social situations. And I think anybody who comes from a suppressed minority background who's ever had to do any kind of code switching will understand where I'm coming from with that, that sometimes in a dominant majority mindset, you go with the flow and you perform in the most consistent way. way. Exactly. Consistent, recognizable way so that you are as most virtually invisible as possible so that you avoid conflict. And you're also trying to speak someone else's language so they'll get it. (laughs) Exactly. Some things aren't worth dying for and some things aren't worth alienating yourself over. And that was one of those things. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's what you're saying about not dying on that hill. It's a, it's very literal as well, because there's so much violence perpetrated against people in the queer community in the gender queer community, sort of anyone who's not cis gender, you know, and identifying as what they appear to be, there can be so much violence perpetrated against that community. So, you know, um, being that you're a part of that and that you're aware of that, that's obviously been behind your choices. And that's an emotional trauma that you're going to have to always carry, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And it's nothing new. It's most certainly nothing new because um, we're coming up on the 50th, or rather we just passed the 50th anniversary of um, the Christopher Street Liberation Uprising, which you know we yes. now know as the Stonewall Uprising or the Stonewall riots, um, depending on um, who you talk to. But that campaign, or rather that event, was just a touchstone in queer rights and queer liberation. For, you know, prior to that, Marsha Johnson and Sylvia Rivera had already formed um, Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, I believe. There we go. Um, and that was one of the first trans organizations for New York City Mm. that had come several years after previous, you know, 
very public and high profile um, incidences of conflict in the queer community versus the dominant majority. But what made Star unique was that they were a platform not only for LGBT identifying people, but because of the significant overlap with the disabled population for New York City. Um, Marsha Johnson herself had several debilitating physical and psychological illnesses. And one of, and very often cops used that to disenfranchise her and public officials used that to disenfranchise her because, you know, they'd point out the fact that she had a history of mental illness and had been previously identified for that. But she had a calling card and it was, I may be crazy, but that don't make me wrong. Mm. Um, One of the platforms of STAR was that they demanded that disabled people as a whole, like all disabled people, not just LGBT identifying disabled people, have free access to whatever therapy, whatever medical resources, whatever doctors that they voluntarily chose. But... Isn't it a nice idea? (laughs) If only. I know, right? That would be great. I mean, but doctors at the time still... As this was still several years before um, homosexuality had been taken out of the DSM as a mental illness. Yeah. And, you know, we would still see again decades later with the AIDS crisis where, um, and still today, where homosexuality is seen as a risk factor for yeah. immune disease and for, you know, physical disease associated with gastrointestinal or urogenital problems. And that's fucked up that here we are in 2019 and, you know, gay men still can't donate blood. Um, And that's a real travesty. That's a major problem. Oh, absolutely. And even my partner, when he went to his first um, GI um, after he was diagnosed in the hospital with um, ulcerative colitis, he went to the GI to follow up. And, um, he indicated on the paperwork, you know, that we were married and that I was his spouse and they recommended, um, to do an HIV test, which is not considered something that's part of like a typical stool sample or anything like that. That's not part of a screening for GI. HIV tests are important. It's important to stay tested and to be aware of your status, but it's, hugely presumptuous that the second that they saw that he was in a gay relationship and that he made reference to his, you know, masculine spouse that they said, Oh, have you been tested for AIDS? Yeah. That's really, that's a real shame. It is. Yeah. The presumption involved there. So it's not, you know, and that's, that's the, the queer assumption. It's the gender queer assumption. It's like, no matter how you identify as the minute that you say that you're in a relationship that leans a certain way that they're going to perceive you in a certain way in the medical industry. Exactly. Yeah. I had my imaging done, um, before my surgery and I went in there, the texts at the radiology lab were terrified and they had no idea what equipment to use, what kind of scan they were doing. And they didn't think to ask me. They <laughs> Which is such a simple like, thing. 
Yeah, they made no attempt to ask me. They just made a presumption and changed yeah. what type of pelvic exam they were going to perform on me because I guess they didn't think that my doctor knew best. And they made a presumption uh-huh. just by looking at me about what kind of exam I was going to have. And this you know? is this just highlights the kind of prejudices that people carry, whether or not they think they do. Because these could have been perfectly nice people, right? Who yeah. just fucked up when they, when they met you and when they tried to communicate with you. And it's as simple as reaching out to someone and saying, what can I do to make this experience better for you? Or, or, you know, can you tell me, you know, what the right equipment would be to use for you and, and what would be more comfortable for you, especially when in terms of comfort in a medical setting. Exactly. Um, the university of Iowa came up with an acronym to use for medical professionals to, um, engage with their trans patients. It's called TransCare. Um, And the overall, like, I'm not going to spell out every single letter because that would be pedantic and boring. (laughs) No, but but it's also, would you have that in your memory bank? It seems a long one. Oh, it's very long. Uh, (laughs) But the overall um, approach to TransCare is essentially that medical professionals, you know, doctors, techs, nurses, everybody on board needs to get comfortable with communicating to their patients because patients are terrified as shit, regardless of whether they're trans or cis or whether they're gay or straight patients are terrified as shit to be in any vulnerable, medically compromised position. And white coat syndrome is a real thing. I mean, that's exactly, exactly. We hear about that all the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you hear the term medical PTSD coming up a lot more. I don't know what to make of that word just yet. I still don't know how I feel about what it means to people. But, Mm. um, you know, the consensus is that the onus is on the medical professional to create an affirming and safe environment for the patient, no matter who the patient is. Yeah. And that's the thing is that in medical school, doctors aren't really taught bedside manner. That's never been a focus of the training. The focus is more on providing the care, which is fair enough because their job is to be scientists. But by the same token, we really don't take into account how important bedside manner is and how that is going to affect every medical experience that someone has, particularly if it's someone who's dealing with gender identity representation issues that may be beyond the scope of your average person's understanding. Exactly, exactly. And it, which, by the way, should not be beyond the scope of your average person's understanding either. You know, that's just to say, like, it's time we just accept that this is a thing, guys. You know? Exactly. Yeah. It now, has been can, years. Yeah, yeah. It has been years. It's been far too long. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.